book of the Bible. It's one of the shortest books of the Bible of the New Testament. Second and third John are shorter, I believe, but Philemon is a small little book and sometimes it does not receive the attention that it deserves. But the theme of this book and the theme of the series of sermons that will take us through this brief letter is forgiveness. Forgiveness. That's what we're going to be talking about. Being forgiven and forgiving one another. That's what this book speaks to us regarding. Now, uh, the opposite of Christian forgiveness is to feud. To feud. And when you think of that word, feud, who do you think of? What two families jump into the frontal lobe of your brain when you think of feuding in our country from the late 1700s and early 1800s? I did a little reading on the Hatfields and McCoys this week. The Hatfields from West Virginia and the McCoys from Kentucky. And they were both uh, sort of Part of the Confederate um, side of things in the war between the states of the Civil War, but through the course of certain ones going into the Union and different things happening and conspiracy theories and, and bumps and bruises, those people got really angry at each other in a legendary way as a feud of feuds, and even to the point where they would kill each other at times and murder each other, always in self-defense, of course. And so the Hatfields and the McCoys... I even think there's some reality TV going on still about them these days. Well, their feud digressed to a point where uh, they even would feud over things like whose hog was it that each that the family had, both families claiming ownership over a certain hog because there were a certain number of notches in the hog's ear. Um, and so that meant the hog was a McCoy hog. No, no, the Hatfields, they claimed the hog as a Hatfield hog. And so that case actually went to court. And went to the justice of the peace. Are you with me so far? All right, come on. And, and Anderson preacher Ants Hatfield, he ruled for the Hatfields based on the testimony of Bill Stanton. Oh, this is legend or history, but Bill Stanton, who was actually related to both families, um, he he was the difference maker. He was the key witness that had the hog go Hatfield. And soon after that, he was killed by two McCoy brothers. Of course, um, they were tried, but then let off because it was an act in self-defense. Anyway, um, you know, some of this is humorous and some of it's kind of awful, but really the feuding between the Hatfields and the McCoys represents uh, what we're not supposed to do in the body of Christ. Um, feuding is not Christian. Um, Christianity is based on being forgiven, and because we've been forgiven, we forgive. And so feuding is not something that the Bible ever allows for in the body of Christ or in his church. And you know if you've been part of feuds or are part of a feud or an irreconciled relationship, you know how much pain and suffering that causes in your life even personally. You know the damage of being at odds with somebody, especially people that you care about, where it doesn't seem like you can ever reconcile again. And so um, there's nothing really lighthearted about the angst of being irrecon irreconciled with someone or at odds with someone. Thankfully, the book of Philemon gives us a living 
testimony and example of how reconciliation can take place in your life. And as hard and as difficult as it is to work through very difficult, hard matters in a relationship, the, by contrast, um, incredible joy that comes when you are reconciled again in a relationship really over out, outstrips and overwhelms the pain that you go through to get there. But to get there from here is a difficult process. Listen to me. We need Philemon. This is an excellent way to learn. This is learning by watching Paul as a mentor, mentor someone who is basically his son in the faith, mentoring Philemon on how to reconcile a relationship. We get to be a fly on the wall as Paul goes one-on-one with Philemon and ministers to him in how he can reconcile a relationship that's been deeply broken. And so we need Philemon. This book of the Bible is very important to us. Listen, uh, just by way of uh, prologue here, just to make the case that you're really not supposed to ever have an unreconciled relationship or a relationship where you are unwilling to forgive someone that's seeking it. Let me just show you um, some verses here. Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, there are going to be some situations where it is, where you are in a state of irreconciliation, but you've tried to reconcile it, and it just hasn't happened yet. Um, there's, there's no allowance for you not to try. We, we have to pursue peace. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Matthew 5, 23 through 24, the teachings of Jesus. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. We are to pursue peace, pursue reconciliation. We are to overflow with kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness towards people because we've been forgiven. Listen to this very strong warning also in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. In other words, if you are unwilling in a hard-hearted state to soften, and forgive. If you're unwilling to do that, then it could mean that you are not a Christian at all in the first place. You're not under the forgiveness of the heavenly of your heavenly Father yet. And so it is the strong warning that we should be forgivers. We should be soft-hearted. In other words, there is never an option to withhold forgiveness. If someone is seeking forgiveness and you're unwilling to forgive them and you remain in that hard-hearted state, that is a very, very spiritually dangerous place to be. Can I make that any more clear to you? You do not want to remain there. You must pursue peace because you've been forgiven so much by a holy God and we know how sinful we were and are. And so that propels us, it promotes in us a heart to soften and to forgive when forgiveness is sought. 
There is a general forgiveness, but I'm talking about the actual reconciliation in relationships here. Verse 21 of Philemon is, to me, the goal of the letter and perhaps a good overarching verse to sort of get our arms around where Paul is coming from with Philemon. Remember, uh, just to give you some context, and we'll build this, but Philemon, as a, as a Christian man, owned slaves, one in particular named Onesimus, who fled him, who, who ran away from him, committing a serious crime in the Roman government system. And he also probably, we can infer, stole from Philemon money, not just by leaving, but also stealing physical money to... Um, to pay for his escape. And so Philemon is then exhorted by Paul to forgive Onesimus, but look at verse 21. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. That's Christian forgiveness. Or it's not just going through the motions. It's not raw obedience. It's not, uh uh-oh, you know, I better forgive because I'm, a Christian. It's that you are overwhelmed by the grace of God and your heart wants to forgive and go even beyond what's normal forgiveness or maybe in the world's eyes, you know, kind of a, a, a worldly reconciliation. This is way beyond that. This is Christian reconciliation born by the Holy Spirit softening our hearts by the gospel. And that's what verse 21 is talking about. It's the core of Paul's letter. Um, Paul could have required or commanded this kind of forgiveness, but Paul tries from the outset throughout this letter to go after Philemon's heart. And that really is the issue. If God has brought you into a very difficult, unreconciled situation with someone, God, you know, by his grace, very well could be bringing about reconciliation between you and that person or those people And it could happen for you in this lifetime. But the process of getting there, the process of softening your heart and trusting God by his grace to get you through that difficult trial is what God is up to in your life. We can't guarantee the outcomes, but we can guarantee that if, as you are believers, that God is working in your heart to soften you and to bring you through a spiritual process, just like Paul was working with Philemon, God is working in your life to soften you and bring you through whatever you're going through in terms of reconciliation. To get the full impact of this book, it's very important to understand it in its historical context, to understand the circumstances of what's going on. Who, where is Paul at this stage in his ministry? Who is Philemon and who is Onesimus? And what is the house church that he's writing to? It's very important to understand the, for you to understand the circumstances and the players involved to be impacted and instructed by this letter. So I'm going to fill in the gaps with some history and some details um, to fill it out while answering a very pastoral question um, that I've posed. And that is the, the question of why it is never an option to withhold forgiveness as a Christian. It's never an option. So let me sort of answer that question pastorally over the next few weeks, but also to fill in the historical gaps because the historical context of this story and this narrative in particular is is fascinating and it's powerful. It's a powerful story. All right, first of all, the first reason why 
It's never an option to withhold forgiveness is because, and this is all we're covering this morning, because God gives believers new Christian identities, new Christian identities. And we're gonna look at Philemon's before and after snapshot first, verses one through seven. Let me just read verses one to three. This is the introduction. This is what we'll exposit this morning, but um, just in specific. Verse one, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so this is a letter. It's a small letter. And I'll just give you some history up front. Paul is in Roman imprisonment under house arrest at this time. He's writing during these two years that you can read about at the end of Acts 28, the last chapter of Acts. He's under house arrest. He, he's able to freely receive visitors. He, you know, he's chained to a Roman guard, but he's got some free ministry dynamic going on at the epicenter of the Roman Empire in Rome, basically the New York City of the Roman Empire. He's there. He's, he's known as a missionary there. He's known to be going before Caesar soon, but he's under house arrest and he's able to receive visitors and he receives a few visitors. Um, one is Tychicus and he is receiving Tychicus from a thousand miles away where Tychicus has come from the church at Colossae and And he's sending Tychicus back to that house church in Colossae next to Ephesus, a thousand miles away. Got to go there by boat to get back there. And he's sending the book of Colossians and he's sending Philemon. He's sending a very public letter that'll be read publicly to the whole church. And then you have the little more personal letter that maybe was read publicly. We don't know. I'll get into that. But, but a personal private letter to the owner of the house where the church at Colossae meets at this time. And that is Philemon. And so that's what's, what's going on here. That's what you can surmise from the opening words. And the prison epistles that Paul wrote while he was in prison at Rome under house arrest were Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and this little letter, Philemon. He begins by calling himself a prisoner. He's doing that for two reasons. One, to remind the church and remind Philemon that he's there under the leadership and lordship of Christ. Paul is there not because Caesar put him there. Paul is there because he first and foremost believes Jesus put him in jail to be a missionary. He wears those chains as trophies of the glory of God as he is ministering the gospel. And as we learned in our study in Philippians, the gospel was advancing through this strategic, unexpected mission post, which was a jail or a house that was functioning as a jail where Paul was, a prisoner. And he uses the title prisoner. Why? Because he's not coming, he is coming as an apostle, but he's not coming with the apostolic authority of things on the forefront. He's coming saying, look, I'm a prisoner. I'm about to talk to you, Philemon, as a prisoner about 
your slave that ran away from you. I'm coming in humble ways with a humble title. I'm going to appeal to your heart. I'm not going to pull rank over you. I'm not going to sort of force you, though I could. I'm not going to force you to take Onesimus back, but I'm going to come as a prisoner in a humble way because, again, Paul is strategically wanting to reach Philemon's heart. He mentions Timothy, our brother. Timothy is co-laborer, his son in the faith. I don't know that Timothy wrote, um, wrote Paul's letter for him. Maybe he did, but he's mentioning our brother Timothy, saying, listen, Philemon, you know Timothy. You're part of my family, and Timothy's part of your family. We're talking family time here. And he says uh, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. You know what fellow worker means? It means that Paul formerly had a ministry alongside of Philemon. That's what that means. And if you sort of connect the dots of what we can read from the book of Acts and Acts 18 and 19 with what we can see from the book of Colossians, which was a a letter going right there with Philemon um, at that time, you can sort of connect some dots and fill in some history here. That's, That's interesting. By connecting the dots, first of all, you can understand that that Philemon is the owner of the house where the church at Colossae met. You can also understand that Philemon, as a business owner, would have probably been influenced seven years earlier, seven years before this letter was written, at Ephesus when Paul was there as a Jew. Just sort of to build the context, and we're inferring this or sort of, you know, conjecturing the idea that maybe Philemon went a couple hundred miles from Colossae over to Ephesus to a synagogue and saw a crowd gathered around Paul, a Jew. So you have Philemon, a Gentile, curiously entering into the crowd, hearing Paul teach about Jesus Christ and connect the dots from the Old Testament to Jesus being the fulfillment of that. If you were to read the end of Acts 18 into Acts 19, you would, you would see that Jesus was teaching in the synagogues and he was connecting the dots from um, Old Testament to Christ and proving that Jesus was the Messiah and he was also performing miracles. So there were dramatic displays of healings and things going on to vindicate the message of the gospel. And Philemon must have believed then, AD 53, just sort of, Man, I'm a believer now. I'm, I'm catching on. And probably he either stayed there in Ephesus or came back and forth, but ministered as a fellow worker. It's a significant term, an esteemed term as a co-laborer in the gospel. So Philemon was all in. But then he goes back to his house church at Colossae, and he would have been pretty wealthy because he was able to house and host a, you know, a whole church in his home. And he, he had slaves and we're going to talk about slavery a bit, but he had slaves, and so he was able to facilitate a lot of service. But one of those slaves was Onesimus. And Onesimus apparently saw Philemon was different when he came home, different guy, but didn't really catch on to Philemon's faith. You know, he didn't quite get it. So Onesimus is still an unbeliever as a slave and servant in the home. He sees these new church members showing up. A church is in the house. Maybe he had to serve food and facilitate this church ministry, but Onesimus was not catching on. And we know that because Onesimus fled. He got out of there and probably stole some money to facilitate and to, uh, you know, pay for his escape, where Onesimus went probably to the port city at Ephesus, crossing over the Mediterranean, into Rome, a thousand 
some miles away to blend into the anonymity of a multi-thousand um, population, like a New York City population, where you could blend in as a slave, being perhaps hunted by slave hunters or bounty hunters trying to come after him. Many slaves historically would go to Rome to blend in, to become anonymous, try to get a job and start over again in that situation. So this is all sort of deductive reasoning from what we can see here. Um, Philemon, uh, just as one thought here, verse 19 uh, is spoken to by Paul as owing, he says, owing me even your own self. You see that phrase at the end of verse 19? That means that Paul led Philemon to Christ. Also, uh, verse 2, I want to want to fill in some other details here. Verse 2, Aphia and Aphia, our sister, and our Archippus, or Archippus, our fellow soldier. Uh, this is probably a reference to Philemon's immediate family. Aphia very uh, possibly or probably is Philemon's wife, and Archippus is, is uh, Philemon's son, probably. This is what people surmise historically and just in the way this is written. Kind of, it's written kind of like you would see Aquila and Priscilla Philemon and Aphia. And there's a very personal, endearing tone that's set right out the gate here, right out of the chute. And Paul is a prisoner, so he's not coming with this sort of apostolic pulling rank authority. He's saying, I'm a prisoner, and I'm appealing to you, Philemon. Um, I led you to Christ, and, and, and I want to mention your wife and your son who I who I care about and I'm he's just kind of building the stage here but he's also addressing look at this the whole church verse 2 and the church in your house so there's kind of a public dimension going on um on the outset and it it builds the idea that maybe there could be a scenario where Tychicus which we learned from Colossians 4 is the one carrying these letters maybe Tychicus is coming into the house church and he's not just reading Colossians publicly but he's also reading Philemon publicly we I don't know I mean the it's it's interesting there's a very subtle shift from verse 3 to verse 4 verse 3 grace to you that that you word, that pronoun, is plural. So grace to all of you, house church, and peace, shalom peace to, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's giving this opening gospel affirmation, grace that comes from the grace of the cross and the peace of God be upon you. Not just well-being, but sin reconciled to a holy God blessing is what Paul is doing on the outset. But then in verse 4, there's a shift. He says, I thank my God always when I remember you. And that is a very personal, singular pronoun. And so Paul is, you know, through whoever's reading this or Philemon's reading it personally, he moves from a broad address to a very specific address. Perhaps if Tychicus was reading the letter publicly, you know, he's, he's going, you know, grace to you and peace from God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And who can I pick on here? I'll just, uh, I don't know, just I'll pick on Randy. You know, and, and you, Randy, I want to address you personally. I mean, that, that's kind of the, the tonal shift that happens that you won't see on the surface. But it, but it is a very personal and public letter. Why is that? Well, it's personal and public. It's corporate and personal so that we as a church can sit in on 
Paul's ministry to Philemon. We get to be the fly on the wall. We get to watch the one-on-one interaction between Paul and Philemon. Why? So we can learn from it. There's no better way to learn than catching on to the Christian life as opposed to just learning the Christian life out of a book or out of a, you know, a workbook or something like that, a one, two, three. It's not like that. Christianity and Christian living is, is caught rather than taught often, right? And we learn by examples. And this is a great Christian example about how to learn reconciliation in the Christian life. So, all right. Well, we learn. Our, our Kippus, I, I don't want to just gloss over that in verse 2. He's called a fellow soldier. This is a, a, a man of God, a young man of God that is significant uh, because Colossians 4.17 is, is where Paul also says, Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received from the Lord. So this is probably a son of Philemon who's a minister in training. Why is Paul bringing up all of these people? Aphia, Archippus, the son, the whole church. It's for accountability. It also points to one other thing. Um, the whole church is going to watch as to how this reconciliation comes off or does not. <laughs> I mean, whether Philemon reads this privately or not, guess who just came back with the travel party with Tychicus? Phile- uh, Onesimus. I don't know if Onesimus was the one who delivered the letter Philemon to Philemon or if he kind of hid back for a while because, look, it was a scary situation to be a runaway slave and return suddenly. Maybe he wanted Philemon to read that first before he showed up and came out of the shadows and said, yeah, I'm back. I mean, that's the situation. So there's a lot of interesting drama that's going on in this letter. And in Christianity, you know that when there is feuding, when there is division, when there is heartache, the whole family feels it. And Philemon is a book that includes the whole family feeling this moment together. How is it going to go? Will Philemon reconcile with Onesimus? Will Onesimus reconcile with Philemon? How is this going to work out? Everybody is watching. So, Probably things turned out very well. You know why? Because Philemon is in our Bibles. It's part of the canon of Scripture. Probably things worked out famously well. And verse 21 gives us that inspired um, word that Paul, and he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this. So Paul is writing, I am confident of your obedience. And so things worked out. We don't know um, exactly what happens, but we can very strongly infer that things had a very happy ending between the relationship of Philemon and Onesimus. Now let's learn a little bit about Onesimus. Onesimus, the before and after. Um, Perhaps we'll pick up in verse 10. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, But now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent. Let's stop there. Onesimus. The word or name Onesimus actually means useful. A lot of slaves were named Onesimus sort of for that purpose. Uh, He was meant to be useful. 
And actually, Paul in verse 11 does a play on words here where he's playing out of that name, saying formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Saying something's happened to this dear brother, this rebel who ran off, took some of your money. He's different. Onesimus, he calls him in Colossians 4.9, Onesimus, this is the public letter that came with Philemon, Colossians. Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. That's a strong word. This man was your slave or more like an indentured servant employee. He's now your brother. Spiritually, he's your brother. Well, what happened? What happened? Um, how did this spiritual transformation come about? Uh, I love just building this narrative. It's sort of a beautiful idea of the providence of God, the sovereign plan of God to save somebody is on display in this book. First of all, you have a, re- a rebellious slave named Onesimus. He leaves. He um, pads his journey with Philemon's money, and he goes to Rome. We know that because that's where Paul was posted and they meet up. So he's there. And perhaps it's a story like the prodigal son where Onesimus is spending money on sin and spending and sinning and going down, down, down in terms of personal satisfaction and running out of money, running out of spiritual vitality, running out of uh, encouragement, running out of joy, running out of friendships, um, running from slave hunters, and he hits rock bottom and is at the end of himself, and he does not now know what to do. He's in a busy city. He's scared to death. Perhaps he's out of money. We don't know. But he gets desperate enough to seek out Paul. And I think he did. I I think he went, who do I know in Rome? I remember this guy who was an apostle who had a big impact, pastoral impact in my owner's life. His name's Paul. Maybe he could help me out. Maybe he was running for refuge. Hey, the slave hunters are after me. I need a house to dive into. I'll dive into the house arrest house and find refuge there. And somehow he, he meets up with Paul. He, he had to have gone to Paul because Paul was chained up in the house, right? So he found him and he went there. And maybe it was public enough through, you know, the grapevine that Paul was going to go on trial to the head guy over Rome, the emperor. And so he found out where Paul was and found him. But who found who in that situation? Because Onesimus found Paul, but Jesus found Onesimus. And Onesimus, ironically, went as a runaway slave out from under a physical master named Philemon only to meet Paul, but really through the message of the gospel to meet Jesus, his true master, where Onesimus turned in his um, you know, slave card here and became a slave of Christ over here. Okay, he was serving in this mansion house situation where the church of Colossae met under Philemon as an unbeliever. Then he became a believing slave of Christ in a jailhouse. (laughs) How ironic is that? And not only does he leave one post for another, this post is him serving and staying with willingly, openly, refreshingly with the apostle Paul to serve him in ministry. 
Uh, Roman law said that within 20 days, if you were housing a runaway slave, you had to turn that slave in to the magistrate or back to the owner or you were an accomplice to the crime. I don't know how Onesimus pulled that off with Paul, but Paul was already in jail. So he's like, hey, stick around and serve me here in gospel ministry. And he did that because he was actually serving Christ as a slave of Christ now here in Rome. Stay there for a while. We don't know how long. But time came when Tychicus and some other believers that we'll learn about were um, creating a travel party to go back to Colossae. And I think Onesimus, in his heart, learning about the gospel, learning about the teachings of Christ, came under conviction. This is what happens. You're unreconciled to somebody. You've done something wrong, and, and you start to grow in Christ. You start to get blessed. You start to forget about that, and then the Holy Spirit brings that back to mind. You say, I got to do something about that messed up relationship. Guess what? I'm learning the teachings of Christ, and in, in the teachings of Christ, I am supposed to leave my gift at the altar and go back and reconcile myself with that brother, and I need to. And it's scary, it's hard, it's awful, it's going to be difficult. Hey, I'm going to get into how risky this was personally for Onesimus. Very high risk, but his heart was convicted that he needed to go back to Philemon and make things right with him, even if he lost his life in the process. And so they set up this traveling party with Tychicus and company, and they went back to Colossae. And I I think for you to really understand the full weight of what was going on, you got to understand something about Roman slavery at this time in the Roman Empire. It's maybe a different picture somewhat than what you've been exposed to in our country's history and sad history of slavery um, it, it ramps up in some ways, and it's different in some ways than what we find um, in that situation. I mean, this, <laughs> I have to point this out as well. Uh, this story almost sounds like a Dickens novel, doesn't it? Not that I read Dickens novels personally, but doesn't, you know, just, it, my wife does. So, you know, by, you know, somehow I get some, you know, some English lit splash over. But, but all that to say, right? Anyway, um, you know, it could be easy to say, listen, you know, this sounds too romantic or extravagant, you know, for Hero Nesimus finds Paul and whatever, but all of your testimonies are like that, aren't they? You know, every testimony is unique, and Christ found you in a unique way and loved you enough to have someone share Christ with you, whether you were a pharisaical hypocrite, whether you were, you know, raised in a Christian home and didn't know you were really sinful or whatever your situation was, someone loved you enough to share Christ with you and your eyes were opened in circumstances that weren't any more crazy than this situation. But once we're saved, we, we in, invariably get prompted in our spirits to make certain things right that were wrong. And that's what Onesimus is doing. Now, how risky was it for him to go back um, huge high stakes in the Roman system. Um, it, uh, Onesimus had committed two capital crimes where you would be killed for them 
um, potentially. Col- Colossae was made up of, um, a third of the population was made up of slaves. And slavery was not based on race, um, it was anybody. And so really, uh, slaves couldn't rally around one another and, and make an uprising or an insurgence against the Roman Empire. And it also was made up of, of people who had been captured through the advancement of the Roman Empire, typically through war. And so slaves were, were part of the population from different races, different nationalities, different situations. There were also poor people in Rome who would see a situation and actually offer themselves or sell themselves into slavery. And because it was worse for them to live as a free man or woman who was poor. And so you had a variety of situations where you had slaves who were in a variety of situations under a variety of different kinds of masters. You, you would have, and, you, and I, I don't want to make any, um, you know, make light of the situation. A lot of times it was very hard to be a slave. You were property, and there were many abuses that happened through being owned as property. And, and awful atrocities took place where you had, would have harsh masters. And there were different situations and different posts that you could be given as a slave. You could be out in the agricultural world or in the proverbial salt mine as a slave and very, have a very hard life. Or you could be a slave that's under a very kind master where you're part of the family, where you're actually like a nanny in the home and provided for, well provided for for. It was kind of a toss-up. You could be someone who was apprenticed underneath your your master, your owner's trade. There were slaves who became medical doctors or business owners who were very much like Joseph of Genesis 37 to 50, who became stewards of the home and trusted like family as slaves. And so it's a variety of situations. And, And the Bible in the Old Testament, I mean, it does countenance a form of indentured servanthood that's called slavery in contract agreement. But the abuses of slavery are always condemned in Scripture, always. And in the New Testament, um, the New Testament isn't affirming slavery as I read the Scripture, but it's also not denying that social system. Um, And just another side note, um, Paul's mission here is not to abolish slavery. I mean, as you look through the New Testament, you have the, the social structure that, that allows for slavery, where you have masters who are Christians and you have people who are saved as slaves. And, and Paul isn't trying to just rip apart that system, even if he could. I, I just want to say this. The church was not the same as it is in America back then. The church was small. The church didn't have the sort of social uprising power that it might even have today to make a scene or hit the news. I mean, the church was meeting in house churches. It was small. It was tiny. So it wasn't really um, tempted to be part of social activism. I will say this, though. The gospel does and, and did undermine slavery in our country and in Europe before. Um, when you start witnessing to people and with the gospel, the owner gets saved and the slave gets saved. So slaves and owners become Christians. That brings about the fruit of reformation. And that's part of William Wilberforce's effect in Europe where slavery went away. And then in our country's history, I think the gospel and the fruit of the gospel um, was part of the abolition of slavery and the civil rights movement in the early 20th century. So there's a lot to be said about slavery. But back to Rome. 
the Roman Empire was built on this social structure of slavery. And so um, there was a threat of punishment that came if you rebelled as a slave. There was actually a situation that took place um, um, in, in contemporary fashion where a man named Padanius Secundus was murdered by one of his slaves. And Tacitus, the Roman historian, reported that the prosecution, when this thing went to trial, argued for the public execution of not one of the 400 slaves that this man owned, but for all 400 of the slaves to be killed. And they were publicly executed as an example of what not to do if you're a slave. You don't kill your master. If you ran away, you were branded with an F, and it was representing the Latin word fugitivus, which we get the word fugitive. If you stole and were a thief, then you would have a CF put on your forehead, furum, which means beware of thief. So there was a strong stigma and a strong warning not to do what Onesimus did. Onesimus did something culturally, societally, really, really wrong, and the stakes were really, really hairy for him as he returned even to Christian Philemon. And you might say, yeah, but Philemon is this fellow worker in the gospel. Nothing's going to happen there, right? I mean, uh, Philemon, uh, shouldn't he just, shouldn't Paul just say, look, Philemon, you need to free Onesimus. You need to offer him manumission, um, freedom. Well, that's not what Paul was shooting for. You know what Paul was shooting for? Paul wasn't shooting for that. I mean, Barclay, one of the one of the commentators says, when you read Philemon, we're bound to ask what happens next. I mean, perhaps he did free Onesimus, not sure. But but Paul is shooting for something deeper than just freedom. Paul is calling Philemon's heart to melt at such a level that when he sees Onesimus, he will not just receive him back in good graces in terms of like an employer-employee relationship or an owner-slave relationship and everything's okay. He wants, Paul wants Philemon to see Onesimus now as a beloved brother, a family member. And at some level, I gotta say this. If Philemon keeps Onesimus as a slave, if, if Philemon's social status stays the same, even temporarily, in this situation, it's perhaps a more pronounced witness of the glory of the gospel. Because to be a slave, you are the lowest of the low in the social structure of the Roman Empire. And to be socially at that level, and then for the gospel to elevate you nevertheless even higher than yourself as a Christian, where you say, Onesimus, not only are you my equal and are you my brother as a slave, I am going to esteem you higher than even me in the gospel ministry. It reminds me, for instance, of Galatians 3, 28. Listen to this. Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Hey, guess what? Women, when you became Christians, you didn't become not women. <laughs> uh, men, when you became Christians, you didn't, your gender didn't change. Um, when, you know, when, when you were of a particular race, when you became a Christian, your race didn't change. But something even more deep than all of that, even more profound than that, did change. Your nature, your spiritual nature changed. And when you 
meet up with someone that is a fellow brother and sister in Christ and you know that and you know that together and you are together on that heart level, there is something profound that cuts through race, it cuts through um, gender, it cuts through social structure and social status where you elevate each other in the gospel with a gospel love and a gospel embrace that is more powerful than any of those external reforms. So Philemon, when his eyes met Onesimus' eyes, and he he was reading this, he saw Onesimus now as his brother. Now listen, I you know I've got a few uh, sons. I've got four 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 sons that are brothers, and I watch them how they love each other and how they have each other's back. I mean, it's unbelievable. I saw a kid um, just recently picking on one of the four. And I, I was just sitting there. I was just, I mean, I eventually intervened, but I was just, I was just watching it. I'm going, don't do that, son. I mean, he's bigger than one of my kids and was picking on him. And, you know, he was handling himself pretty well. But I'm just watching the other brothers just, just watch. And I'm like, you don't want to, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. And, uh, you know, I broke it up and, you know, we had a nice gospel moment. But it, when you are brothers together, it cuts through feuding. When you understand that you are brothers and sisters in Christ, there is no biblical allowance not to forgive each other. You are at the ground level, one in Christ. Amen? That's what we're shooting for in the Christian life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are family. And Lord, we do go through...